All right, so last week we covered two books. Does anybody remember what those books were? Joshua and Judges. Well, tonight we are going to do the unthinkable. That is, try to cover three books. Um, But one of them is very small, and the other is one we're preaching through. So hopefully it won't be uh, too difficult for us. So uh, before we dive into the pivotal text and the theme, what do we need to look at when we come to books? First, context. That's right. It's a very important word. So we start with Ruth. We don't know who wrote it. No. Jewish tradition actually credits Samuel as the writer, um, Israel's last judge and the prophet who's going to be introduced into 1st and 2nd Samuel. But it was probably uh, written sometime during the reign of King David, one of Israel's first kings. But when the actual events take place in the book of Ruth, well, uh, the Bible actually tells us when that takes place. You can see it in chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. The setting for Ruth is during that time we saw last lesson. Uh, Israel had no king, therefore there was turmoil and disorder. They were rampant, not to mention their continued sinfulness. Remember that that seven-stage process we saw in the book of Judges over and over again. Many of those stages were not good. But the Judges ruled for about 350 years. So this story takes place sort of next to the end of their rule somewhere in the early part of 11th century B.C. Uh, And the people don't know it at the time, but the reign of the Judges is coming to an end, as we'll see in a moment. So that's the that's a historical context. We don't need literary or textual context because it's a book that we're covering. So now we're looking redemptive historically speaking. Uh, this is significant. The sort of things that happened during the time of the judges, that, remember, they just can't continue to go on forever like that, can they? The people really had no leaders. The leaders that they were given in, in the Lord as a leader, they continually reject. And so the judges who served as their leaders, they were only called upon when there was a national disaster. It's just repeated over and over again. So the people actually need more stability in that, especially if they're ever going to enjoy that rest that we saw prefigured in the book of Joshua, that rest in God for any length of time. So Ruth serves really as a transition from the time and the period of the judges to the coming kingship story we see in First and Second Samuel coming to Israel. So that's the context. The theme, we can summarize Ruth like this. God is raising up his king to keep the covenant and redeem his people, despite the apparent circumstances which suggest that God has forgotten his people. Many of the events in the book of Ruth, make it appear as though God is far off and that God is not involved with the life of the nation of Israel anymore, that he's kind of just had enough. However, the writer of the book of Ruth makes clear that it only appears as if God has forgotten his people. In reality, God is behind the scenes everywhere preparing his people to take that next step forward in his plan of redemption to give them a king. And all of that is kind of couched in a story about redemption and rescue, foreshadowing what this future king will do as redeemer and savior. 
You see your outline there with pivotal text? That's for you. There's just four chapters in the book of Ruth. Yahweh brings affliction. Yahweh arranges circumstances. Yahweh builds suspense. And Yahweh provides a redeemer prefiguring a kingly redeemer. Let's look at just the theme text. And we're only going to look at one since it's only four chapters. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 22 of the book of Ruth. Because sometimes, I don't know if you know this, the best way to understand a story is to first see how it ends. So turn to chapter 4, and let's look at verses 18 through 22 together. Anybody want to read that for me? Oh, I know it's got names. All right, I'll read it. This is the key to names. All right, I'm going to teach you something. Just say it with confidence. All right, nobody's going to correct you, specifically in Callahan, Florida. Nobody's going to come at you with like that's not how I heard it pronounced. All right, where where did you get your Hebrew from? All right, here it goes. Chapter 18 says, now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon, Salmon, Salmon. Ruined it. Uh, Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David. It's a significant, right? Does anybody know why this genealogy is really a climax to the book? Because this book is as much about this guy, it really is centered on this guy, Boaz. I know it's called Ruth, but Boaz also serves as a, a very important figure here. You see there in verse 21, the book gets its name from the woman who Boaz rescues out of dire straits. In the first chapter, Ruth and her mother-in-law, anybody remember her mother-in-law's name? Naomi. Naomi find themselves without husbands and therefore, because of the culture, without any resources during a time of famine. So everything looks really bleak for them. And add to all that trouble we read about last lesson in the book of Judges. And so in chapter 2, we discover that Ruth has what is called a kinsman redeemer. Anybody want to take a stab at what that means? Right, absolutely. So, in short, uh, in ancient Israel, when, when a man died, that man's closest male relative was responsible to take care of his widow by marrying her and raising up children on his behalf. Uh, these were called Israel's leverage laws. You can actually read about them in Deuteronomy 25. They were intended to preserve the man's family name and also to protect his widow from destitution, right? So at any rate, Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Boaz steps up and takes responsibility and gladly marries Ruth. And in it all, Ruth and Naomi are provided for in famine, and the family line is established. But what is it that's so intriguing about this family? Why would we spend so much time about this family story? Well, because we know from this line comes the man who will eventually be Israel's greatest king. And that is David. So not only are the women saved from a life of poverty in this beautiful story, saved from a life of poverty and shame, but they actually become one of God's instruments in bringing about the greatest king that Israel has ever known. And even this calamity really makes the end of the time of the judges this short book about two widows, it becomes a transition to the kingship in Israel. 
And it's true. It's saying, it's, it's Christianese, but it's true. God certainly works in mysterious ways. In fact, you will see all throughout this book strong affirmations of the sovereignty of God and how He brought this to pass. It's in chapter 1, verse 6, and verse 8, verse 13, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 2, 20, and chapter 4, 14. So we'll see how this all relates to Christ here in a minute when we transition to First and Second Samuel. But it's also interesting to notice that this idea of redemption here on a very micro scale will be brought to fruition in the ministry of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest lessons we can learn from the book of Ruth is that God is sovereign and in control of not only the good events in our lives, but also the most painful ones. He sends enjoyable times, and He sends trials too. The application here is that trusting in God at those times of difficulty and trial, it really, really will ultimately bring peace amidst the storm. Knowing that, that the universe is not out of control, right? Especially now, friends, when it seems like it is. Knowing that nothing can ever happen to you outside of God's knowledge and His active care for you. That's a great solace indeed. Everything that comes your way is an appointed season of your life. God does not do things in vain or without purpose. So everything God gives, it's handcrafted for you by a loving and wise Father. Now, are we ever really able to answer the question of why these things are happening as they do? No. Certainly not always. We don't always know. But what do we know? We know that God knows why. Don't we? That knowledge, really, for us, it should be enough. Just think of Naomi and Ruth. In chapter 1, there was no way they could have known that the outcome of their trials and their tribulations would be the beginning of the royal family of David. And that would eventually be used to produce the Savior of the world, King Jesus. So, if I can teach you one thing from Ruth, it is this. Trust God in your trials. He is doing thousands of things in and through these trials for your good and the good of others. Trust Him even when you can't possibly imagine what that good might be. That's Ruth. Any questions or comments about Ruth? I think part of that trust, too, is not just to... Trust that God will, will in the end show us what purposes. Like, yeah. The point of this is that they had no clue that the Savior was coming from them hundreds of years down the road. Like, the point is that we may not ever see the result of what, what our trial is for. Right, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we need to understand we're not guaranteed answers, we're not owed answers. We're not. Right? He's not living in our world, we're living in His. But. He's kind enough to give us general purposes for what he does, isn't he? In Romans chapter 8, he does all things for what? For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The problem is we don't get to define that good. He does. Because he ultimately knows what is good. And we don't know perfectly what is good as much as we'd like to admit that we do. It's a good comment. All right. 
First and Second Samuel. You guys should probably just teach this to me, right? All right, maybe not. Well, all that in Ruth, it's a prelude to this continual story about the king of Israel, which we read about when we turn the page to the next book. The books of First and Second Samuel, they were actually originally written as one book, which if your OCD has been bothered that we started in Second Samuel, it's probably going to be even more triggered now that you know that really it's one book and now we've started in the middle. Um, forgive me for that. Uh, but the book opens with the story of Israel's last judge, and his name was Samuel. Come on, that was a layup, right? It's the fried chicken. Every time we have fried chicken, you guys get that glaze over. Okay, anyway. Um, Samuel was also Israel's first great prophet since Moses. Did you notice that? Really, there hasn't been a prophet like Samuel since Moses. It's believed that Samuel was the one who probably wrote at least the first half of the book, and someone else completed the second half shortly after David's reign was complete. Uh, The events in this book, they cover... Um, not so much time, probably 400 years, between 1100 and 970 B.C. Not 400 years, that's bad math. 40 years. Um, that's, that's also bad math. 140 years. Is that right? What's 1100 minus 970? That's 140, right? Do y'all know that I, we... Aren't, aren't you glad I got the budget of this church? <laughs> See, what I'm trying to do is get you to be involved so that you actually check this budget thing and check my math there. It's 140 years. 130 years. No, 1100. So it's 100. No, you're right. It's still right. Hold on a second. Let me get a hand here. 1100. You don't trust Nine seventy. So thankful for the for the finance committee. It's 130. Who said that? I said that, didn't I? All right. Glad we can have fun tonight. All right. So as far as the redemptive historical picture goes, I just want at the end of the night, I want this to be the only thing written on this book. First Samuel opens uh, really at the same place that Ruth does. The land's occupied. And again, remember, Joshua, the people can't really enjoy that rest, even though God provided for them the land of rest. So a king is needed, and God is about to supply one. And so to get a handle on what's going on in First and Second Samuel, we'll summarize the books like this. God will rule over his people through the king whom he chooses. The king must keep the covenant and obey the word of God in order to be a good shepherd to the people. This is a big step, and it is the next step forward in the plan of redemptive history. Because now they have the land, but now they need a king to shepherd, lead, and care for the people. And the king, in turn, will represent the people before God. God will, from here on, deal with the people according to the obedience and disobedience of the king. That's very, very important for the rest of Old Testament history that you understand what was just said here. Okay, God will, from here on, deal with the people according to the obedience or disobedience of the king. So, so the king has a great task of carrying the people on his shoulders, and their, their fate is bound up in his actions. Is this clicking at all to you in a little bit? Remember, connect it to the gospel always. Therefore, it's imperative that the king keep the terms of the covenant and obey the word of God. As a consequence of this, 
we're going to see an interesting shift in focus from this point on in the entirety of the Old Testament. So far, much of the focus of the Old Testament has been on Yahweh's relationship with his people Israel and what he's doing with them, right? Israel's forefathers, Israel's history, Israel's land, Israel's destiny. Now, a great deal of the focus of the rest of the Old Testament is going to be with who? His relationship with who? Not just David. The king. The king. The king king of Israel. Uh, The promises made to the first kings, the king's obedience or lack thereof, the kingship's future, and the goal of the kingship. Interestingly enough, we will also see Satan focus his attacks as well. Right? Remember, we talked about Genesis 3. The seed of the serpent continues to attack the seed of the woman in the attempt from stopping that one seed from coming into the world. So we'll walk through these two books by just, again, this is an overview of the theme text listed in our outline. You see it there. Um, 1 Samuel 1 through 7, 1 Samuel 8 through 14, 15 through 2 Samuel 8. And then 9 through 20, 21 through 24. Of course, we're at a little bit of a microcosm of that as we go um, in much more detail in 2 Samuel. So, uh, But you'll notice the first four sections end with concluding summaries of the central figure's work. And we've got those texts in there as well. Let's start with the first overview, first seven chapters of Samuel. They're all about the rise of the king of Israel. Although... In the first seven chapters, they're not about a king at all. They're about a prophet, Samuel. That's interesting because prophets were charged with guarding the covenant and and prophets were charged with bringing the word of God to the people. And so by starting the story of the king with a story about a prophet, we're reminded that even though the king reigns and rules in Israel, He does not reign above the word of God. Yahweh governs his people by his word, and that includes the king. He, too, is subject to the scriptures just like everyone else. And so throughout the many stories to come of the many different kinds of kings we will encounter, there will always be prophets there present with the king, calling the king to covenant faithfulness and trying to keep the king accountable. The buck does not stop with the king of Israel. The buck stops with the word of God. In fact, Deuteronomy 17, it's commanded that the first thing the king is to do once he takes his throne is to copy the entire book of Moses by hand and then read it every day. That's a lot harder than 2 Samuel chapter 6 verses 1 through 15, right? 1 Samuel 6, 4 through 6, but anyways, uh, they, they should make the, that should really make the message really clear to him. Right? You are, as a king, subject to the law of God. Read it every day. So that's really kind of the process we see in the first seven chapters. Of course, there's so much more there, isn't it? We know the story of Hannah. We know uh, the story of Eli and his sons, the defeat of the Philistines, the ark going in and defeating the God by itself. God just wiping out all their pagan gods. It's so awesome, but we get that every Sunday. So we'll go ahead and skip forward because this is an overview class to 1 Samuel 8 through 14. In chapter 8, what happens? Who can tell me? 1 Samuel 8, what happens? What do the people ask for? 
king. A king, what, how? Like the king of the nation, right? So that's the story of the king really gets started here. There's just one problem. We said this whole story is about a king, but in 1 Samuel 8, Israel's actually sinning by asking for a king. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we think about it, but it actually does. Because even though a king was promised to the people as far back as Genesis chapter 49, and of course in Deuteronomy 17, and it was clear by this point that the people needed a king, it was still sinful for Israel to ask for one. Why? Because of their motive for asking for one. In fact, look at chapter 8, verse 7. Someone read 1 Samuel 8, verse 7 for me. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Ooh, okay. So who are they rejecting in their sinful asking for a king? God. God, absolutely. So Yahweh has actually looked into their hearts, and he's seen that they don't want a king because they want someone to lead them to be a covenantly faithful nation, and they want someone to lead them under the authority of the Word of God. They want someone to lead them because they are stubborn people who want to be autonomous without Yahweh, and really they want someone to fight their battles for them. It's really quite sad. But Yahweh says in the next verse that Israel has actually always behaved like this since the days they left Egypt. In verses 10 through 18, Samuel tells them that through a king, they are not going to achieve this autonomy and independence they think they're going to achieve. Instead, a king of their choosing, and there is an emphasis on this being a king of their choosing, will only lord himself over them and oppress them. Look at verse 18 of chapter 8 with me. And you will cry out in that day, because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. The kind of king that the people want is only going to spell disaster. Nonetheless, the people's hearts are set. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us. Ah, now we see the true motive of their hearts. They don't want to be a distinct nation, do they? This whole idea of Leviticus, you shall be holy because I, Yahweh, your God, am holy, it's no longer something that's desirable to them. No, not whatsoever. Here, we see why Yahweh said in verse 7 that they are rejecting him in their request. So the people choose their king. And who do they choose? Saul. Saul. And why do they choose Saul? He's big and strong. That's right. He's big, strong, tall, and he's handsome too. So look at verse nine, uh, chapter 9 of verse 16, and we'll see that there clearly. Um, chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, verse 16. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man for the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come to me. It almost sounds like uh, Saul is, is actually really another judge. But at any rate, this is a merciful act in light of Israel's contempt and rejection for Yahweh. 
despite their sin, He's still going to be gracious and kind to them. Yahweh is most gracious and kind to Israel, even when He finally removes Saul from being king over them. Saul disobeys Yahweh in chapter 13 and 15, so Yahweh puts an end to this strange kind of democracy and continues with his original plan, which, by the way, again, as you've heard me say in 2 Samuel, they've never asked for a king after God's own heart, have they? Not even considered it, not thought it'd be something that would be nice, no, not even once have they asked for it, so he puts an end to this, and God is going to choose his own king for the nation. That's what we see in chapter 13. You can move over there. Someone, if you can, read for me 13 through 14. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly, You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your king over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for Himself a man after His own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Okay, so Yahweh sought a king that would be after His own heart. Stop me if you've heard that one before. Saul was disobedient to Yahweh pretty much right from the beginning. He really was. And now the people will have to endure the bitter fruit of their choice as civil war ensues. Uh, Since Saul is not easily going to give up the kingdom to whoever this man after God's heart will be. In fact, God even says, I'm going to give it to your neighbor who's better than you. Uh, But it's worth making a few comments by way of application right here, isn't it? It's very easy for us to become enamored with the fuel and time that earthly kingdoms run on, isn't it? Who's got the power in Washington? Who's got the might? Whose plan of takeover is the most cunning? And who's got the prestige? So on. But listen, in God's kingdom, Yahweh is insistent on doing things by His wisdom. He often does things exactly counterintuitive the way that we think that he do things. And the reason for this is that God wants to do things in a specific way that bring about a particular result. Giving glory to God and not man. The Lord intentionally governs his kingdom in a way that makes it clear to everyone that he is great and worthy of all glory. More on this in just a moment. Alright, let's move to 1 Samuel chapter 15 versus to 2 Samuel 8 as we all look at the cutest little Evelyn I've ever seen in my entire life. My goodness gracious, those cheeks. Alright. David's story begins earnest in 1 Samuel 15. Now that Yahweh has rejected Saul as Israel's king, he will now select a king who fits his bill. Who portrays characteristics that he's looking for. Who really, again, as we saw even Sunday, not so much that, just is dependent upon him as a good king should be. Who recognizes that he's king with a little k, and that God is king with the big k. Look at verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. I keep saying verse 16, chapter 1. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. See, Notice the difference here? The difference is that Yahweh, not the people, are going to select the king. 
Look what Yahweh tells Samuel in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Yahweh wants a king who is already obeying a major theme that we saw in Deuteronomy. To love Yahweh. What was the Shema again? You shall love the Lord your God what? That's right. So Yahweh is looking on the inside of man. Only one who loves Yahweh like that is going to be suited to rule his people. A lot of things that can be pointed out here. I wasted time doing that math. Um, a lot of things we pointed out here um, as we are introduced to David. And notice in verse 4, he's from Bethlehem. That point is made over and over again in this chapter. And the next is David's also, what is he by trade? Shepherd, right? He's a shepherd. When David's anointed king in verse 13, the spirit of Yahweh rests upon him. If we put on our New Testament goggles and look back at these attributes of David, it's not hard to see that David is a type of Christ, right? He is meant to foreshadow the life and ministry of a much greater king from Bethlehem who is known to his people as the good shepherd with the spirit upon him, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that over and over and over again, probably exhaustively, haven't we? David prefigures Jesus. In fact, a case could be made that David prefigures Christ more than anyone else in the Old Testament. That, that's the lens through which we should look at the life of David. What is this or that about David? What is it teaching us about who Christ is? And you've seen that hopefully on Sunday morning, why we constantly use those types interchangeably, right? The application for David is to point forward towards Christ despite David's sinfulness, which we'll get to in a second. So the typological events of David's life, they begin right away. What is his most famous story? Goliath. Goliath. David and the giant, right? So this story, it's often applied to people like this. Stop me if you've heard this. Friends, what you have is big Goliath-sized problems in your life. You've got problems of economic stress, loneliness. Maybe you're feeling a bit overweight, etc. What you need is you need to take the stone of faith, right? The stone of prayer, the stone of the Bible, memorize it, and conquer that giant in your life. That's just complete garbage. You know that, right? It's not. Okay, yes, stress, loneliness, and you know all those things are really big problems. Yes, faith, prayer, Bible memorization, they're mighty tools to overcome those big problems. However, that is not what is happening in 1 Samuel 17. There's something much greater. There is something on a redemptive historical level that's going on. David has just been anointed king, and now he goes out and he conquers the enemy of God's people. Whereas prior, they were what? They were terrified to fight. Now, Israel routs the Philistines quite easily because they've already been defeated by David's charge. The same thing is going to happen when Christ defeats sin and death for his people. If Goliath is a seed of the serpent, defeated by David, the serpent himself is defeated by Christ. In fact, Hebrews 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 9 through 15 
says this, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Well, at any rate, you can read of David defeating God's enemies in chapter 17. You can read of his sufferings, uh, how he endures suffering, starting in chapter 19. You can read of him welcoming those in distress in chapter 22, his saving of the people of God in chapter 23, his fear of the Lord in chapter 24 through 26, his befriending of Gentiles in chapter 27, and then his suffering at the hands of the Gentiles in chapter 29 through 30. Don't you see it? All these things are meant to highlight that David is indeed a man after God's own heart and a king who foreshadows the eschatological king, Jesus Christ. Speaking of that great eschatological king, Jesus, let's hear what all this means for us. Um, submit to the king that David was meant to foreshadow. Repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. David had many friends, but David also had a ton of enemies. When he returns in power and glory, you don't want to be counted among Jesus' enemies. Instead, you're advised, as it says in Psalm 2, to be wise, be instructed, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. All right. Turn to 2 Samuel 5. I'm so close. I probably should just like stop all these breaks and just keep going, right? Yeah, Pastor Cody, do it. All right, thank you. I see that Pastor Appreciation Month is over. That's okay. Um, All right. You remember that we said that the taking and possessing of the land in the book of Joshua, in the book of Joshua, excuse me, it was the high point of redemptive history thus far, right? But as we come to 2 Samuel 5, oh, we just preached this. We have an even greater climax here, don't we? For in 2 Samuel 5, David finally takes his rule over all Israel and establishes Jerusalem as the capital. Then chapter 6, the climax kind of continues in chapter 6. Tune in, the Ark of the Covenant's brought to Jerusalem. You know what the Ark was? I'm going to skip that because we're going to talk about that. Uh, and then we see in chapter 7. <clears throat> chapter 7 will be known as the inauguration of David's covenant. Yahweh's promises to Abraham still stand, but now he's going to tack more promises onto that original covenant. You'll see that in verses 1 through 3. And you know what? I'm not even going to read that because we're going to cover that next week. So um, now. Uh, we'll go ahead and do this. We'll turn to the last section really quickly, 9 through 24. We'll cover this. The truth of the story of David 
is not the final seed who is to come into the world. As we know through our study in 2 Samuel, we've already seen subtle hints that this is not the one, right? And how do we see that and why do we see that? What does David do? How does he sin? You can say it. Murder, adultery. We'll start with the adultery, right? We'll leave. We'll start with the concubines and wives that just keep piling up a little, little by little and then more and more. Um, he's not the final Messiah. As great of a king as he was, problem with David is that he was still a sinner. So only a type of the true king of Israel. The rest of 2 Samuel will tell of his sin and demise. David was certainly a seed of the woman, yes. He gained victories over the seed of the serpent, yes. But he still leaves us longing for more and looking for the one seed who's not corrupted by sin, nor who dies like all sinners do in the end. So in conclusion, <clears throat> Ruth and First and Second Samuel, they truly comprise an exciting slice of the Old Testament. But like everything in the Old Testament, it leaves us longing for more. When will the head of the serpent be crushed? When will the one seed of the woman who will never sin nor die, when will that seed be born? When will all of the world know the blessings of the Lord? Well, just keep studying further and we'll keep looking for the Savior. Or you can turn uh, to 96.1 and you can start hearing songs about Him already uh, in the Christmas season. Uh, application. Let's, uh, let's apply this. This is super practical. I hope you all have this in your notes, right? Um, application, understand. Look at these questions here, guys. This is the, this is the most important thing you can do uh, this week. Just, just consider these things. Think upon these truths. How would you briefly describe the story of redemption now from Genesis to 2 Samuel? See, if you'd started this when we started asking in Deuteronomy, it would be super easy. But now it might be a little overwhelming, right? We've got to cover some more books. Um, how would you describe that story of redemption? What was something new you learned? Something old you were reminded of? What types do we see in the book? What anti-types do we see? And then apply. We do this by using the acronym SPACE PETS. Yep. Uh, is there a sin to avoid? That's the S. Is there a sin to avoid, uh, confess, or forsake? Is there? Do you have? Are you filling these in? I don't have No, okay. You got them all. All right. So is there a promise to believe or condition to meet in order to partake of the promise? Is there an attitude to change or guard against or an action I need to take? There's two A's there. Is there a command to keep? Is there an example to follow? Is there a prayer to pray or a priority to change? Is there an error to mark? Is there a truth to memorize and meditate upon? And is there something to click here? Was that? <laughs> That's the editor, by the way. I missed that one. All right. I'm the math is me. The typos are not. Um, all right. So, uh, and then S. Is there something to thank or praise God for? You can't click on that. If you tried, uh, see me after service. We'll get you checked. All right. Uh, and then finally, teach. Again, remember. Um, we talked about this this week. There's a difference between discipleship and making disciples. Making disciples is the act of discipleship with the goal of reproduction, right? That I would not just sit and soak in, but I'm, I'm understanding that I'm, I'm like a fire hydrant that needs to pour out all the things that I might take in to those who are around my sphere of influence. So who might benefit from you sharing your something old or something new from tonight's lesson? And who of your sphere of influence needs to hear the gospel from you? Any questions, comments at all? All right. Remember, we've got a, we've got one more lesson next week. We're going to actually trace through the covenants. 
then we're going to have an opportunity to answer any questions you might have. So look, we've covered quite a bit of books here, right? There's what, 10 books? 10 books. 10 books we've covered. Um, and so 10 books of history in the Old Testament. Um, and if you have questions of anything that wasn't surveyed, <clears throat> that you'd like to talk about, like to ask, send me a message. I've got one question so far. Um, and so uh, if you if you'd like to do that, we'll spend a couple of weeks, buffer weeks, looking at that and answering some of those questions uh, before we start our next class, okay? Um, other than that, am I missing something? Next week. Next, next week's going to be fun. We'll be tracing the covenants together. Again, kind of bringing back to the refrain of to see the servants see the one. All right, anybody want to pray for us? All right, I will. Okay, let's rock. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to come into your house and worship the Lord. I pray that you would just bless us in this time. Uh, help us to not just take these words that we've, we've read and, and uh, studied and just let it go in one ear and out the other. Help us to be doers of the word. Help us to apply this to our lives and help us to uh, mold us and make us into um, more of an image like you. Help us to be uh, reflectors of the gospel in this world pray that you just help us to make disciples and to uh, live out these truths. We pray that you just uh, bless each and every one of us here. We really pray you to Christ in your prayer. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Have a blessed day.